0: There would be all these interrelations and so on, but they would be peaceful relations, -relations. interrelations, because the kinds of reasons we would have for, you know, conquering other territories and so on wouldn't be there anymore. Mm. One of the reasons why you want to go out and conquer somebody is to seize their capital, as it were, primitive. uh, Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And you wouldn't need uh, to do that because you would be. And cooperative
1: production with, uh, right. with everyone around the world. Right. It's, right.
0: That's the, that would be the ideal, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would be communism.
0: That would be international communism,
1: yeah. Right, yeah. So, all right, well, let me ask you one more question on this, and then I, I want to ask you about Zizek if you have a few more minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, the death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life.
0: Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into?
1: The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that diet soap is a sublation media podcast okay um so uh terry pinkard is a professor of philosophy at georgetown university he is the author of hegel a biography hegel's phenomenology the sociality of reason and Hegel's Dialectic, the, the Explanation of Possibility, along with other books. You've also written extensively on Sartre. Is, is that right? Um, mm-hmm. Professor Pinker, welcome to the Diet Soap podcast. And oh, thank, thank you for having me. Time. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to start <clears throat> just by asking you a kind of a really basic question about yourself, which is how did you come to be interested in Hegel? Why, why Hegel for you?
0: Well, uh, as in, with many people, was, you know, I kind of backed into Hegel. Uh, that is, I was, as a student, of course, I was in the 60s, right? The mid, you know, early to mid 60s, I was very interested in Marx. Mm-hmm. I also became very interested you know, in just philosophy in general and social theory in general and Kant. So if you start with Kant and you have Marx, you start wondering, you know, then as you read more and more about both these people, you keep running across Hegel. So you figure eventually you've got to get around to that. Mm-hmm. And of course, like many people, I was also interested in Sartre and Sartre's, you know, moved to a kind of Hegelian Marxism later on in his life and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's more or less it. How I, it was a matter of political commitment, intellectual curiosity. And I I backed in, like I said, I backed into Hegel going forward from Kant and backward from Marx and backward from Sartre and Heidegger and so on.
1: Were you a part of the student protest movement at that time? Or you oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. En- engaged in protesting the, the yeah, war in yeah, Vietnam and. Yeah. And the civil right protesting, or with the civil rights movement, and and all of that.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, those were th- those were the issues of the day, and that's what we were, you know, carrying on about at the time.
1: Okay. Were you a member of SDS or anything? Yes, I was Yes. Uh,
0: okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, all right.
1: So, um, I I want to start out as we talk about Hegel, um, asking you, um, well, t- kind of telling you a story about my own experience. Uh, not studying Hegel. Um, I majored in philosophy at, as an undergraduate at Portland State University in the, in the 90s. And um, I was not made to read Hegel. I oh, recall, really? a course. Yeah, I, I had a course that traced a philosophical inquiry that I really recall having an influence on me. And it, we started with Locke and then went to Berkeley and then Hume or Berkeley and Hume and then um, to Kant. Uh And that, and then after that we were done and I took a course on Wittgenstein. Um, So at the time I was frustrated, like I felt like I hadn't gotten anywhere. And um, it seemed like I was like learning philosophical arguments only to throw them aside uh, to dismiss them. And, and um, I felt like it was sort of a dead end. Like I could, I could play this game of philosophy, but it didn't connect to my life. And I was political, but it was the 90s. So you know my politics were about reading anarchy magazine and going to see <laughs> noam chomsky and <laughs> and that kind of thing
0: um uh, yeah, you but, worse. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah so but um so why is it, am i right in thinking that hegel was sort of dropped from the american
0: university curriculum oh yeah it's a, it's a long and complicated story but um, hegel was dropped for a variety of reasons i mean first let's put it like this he in the First World War, there was a tremendous anti-German feeling in the United States, such that even John Dewey got into the act of you know, condemning all everything German, German philosophy, and so on. And then and after the Second World War, uh, Karl Popper wrote The Open Society and its Enemies, right, where he accused Hegel in many ways of being the author of, kind of totalitarianism and fascism and so on. This is at the same time in the post-war period when all the anti-totalitarian stuff was coming to the fore. So Hegel was blamed for, you might say, German militarism in World War I, Nazism in World War II, and for being just a complete and total obscurantist, right? So this also came back to, you know, Russell and Moore at the very beginning of the 20th century mm-hmm. for breaking with their Hegelian teachers and so on, the, the, the older guard there at, mm-hmm. at Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, and <clears throat> so Hegel was regarded as an obscurantist who didn't understand modern science or logic, uh, he was then blamed, in, at least in the American scene, for World War I and <laughs> World War II. Right. Uh, then he was blamed for being the author of totalitarianism. So he was, he was in pretty bad standing, you might say. So we wanted yeah. to understand why Hegel dropped out. The other thing, of course, about this is that there's, you know, getting rid of Hegel as part of the great creation myth of analytical philosophy, That is, analytical philosophy was born specifically by people like Russell rebelling against Hegelianism. So they weren't rebelling against Spinoza and they weren't rebelling against this or that. They were rebelling against Hegel. He was the uh, so it's only by only by killing Hegel did analytical philosophy arise. And thus you have got this kind of view that you know still is prevalent among a lot of philosophers that um you know, that you don't need to read Hegel. It's kind of I don't read Hegel and I'm proud of never having read Hegel. So that's part of the background of all that. Mm-hmm. Of course, one of the things that happened was that, and you what know, has to remember that in 1959, when Peter Strawson published Individuals, an essay in descriptive metaphysics, um, that doesn't sound like much, but in those days, having the word metaphysics in the title of a book by an Oxford philosopher was considered really incendiary. Mm-hmm. Then also, Strawson's identification with Kant and all this was also incendiary. So Kant made it back onto the scene. And then with Rawls, Kant made it big time onto the scene
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. so, and it's only, you know, you can only go down the Kantian road just a little while before you start looking to see what's coming next. And the next thing, you know, Hegel was back on the agenda again, but
1: really, well, that's what I felt like. I, I think I didn't know it, but I felt like I was missing something like well, it, were. after, after <laughs> God, you know, it's <laughs> like, yeah. like, wait a minute, this didn't resolve anything. What, what, what we need, we need something else. Yeah. Um, So, um, so you started studying uh, Hegel in in this context where he was no longer part of the university. How did you did you study him in university despite that? Did you find a school that would teach that? Did you were you an autodidact? How did you actually?
0: Uh, Well, I was I was quite lucky in the time that um, at the University of Texas where I was Mm -hmm. was a period when both John Finley and Klaus Hartmann were visiting professors there. And they, you know, Finley had written a book called Hegel, a Reinterpretation in 1958 or so. That was the first of the first of the wave of the new wave of Hegelianism and so on, though it really didn't have that much of an impact on things. But at least Hegel was there among people in the philosophy faculty who were talking about Hegel, right, in a positive way here. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, it's just, you know, kind of rank contingency. Otherwise I would have been an autodidact. I would have, wouldn't would have been anywhere to study Hegel. I would have just had to do it all on my own. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you got, you got
1: lucky there. Um, so let's talk about Hegel himself and how someone who's like coming to him without a lot of f- philosophy background or, you know, maybe not uh, having any understanding of the Marxist tradition might think of him. Um like okay. the kind of I'm putting myself back in my undergraduate day. It's like when I was an undergraduate, I bought a book called The Worldly Philosophers.
0: Uh-huh. This wasn't
1: this wasn't taught either. And it begins with a chapter on Adam Smith. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm wondering should we put Hegel into a book like that on the Worldly Philosophers? How does he fit within the context of the Bourgeois revolution that that book was sort of about? In fact, it it describes uh, the Bourgeois revolution at the start saying Mankind had gotten along in the comfortable rut of tradition and command for centuries and to abandon this security for the dubious and perplexing security of the market system. Nothing short of a revolution was required. So should we think of Hegel as a revolutionary like Adam Smith?
0: Um, well, the, the, like, this is a kind of loaded question. I mean, the, as if everything Hegelian, right, the answer is yes, I know. Uh, <laughs>
1: right, right. Okay.
0: Um, now, so remember Hegel was born in 1770 that meant that when 1789 he was 19 years old here, mm. right so he and his two roommates right Friedrich Hölderlin and Friedrich Schelling here um, were both all three of them were caught up in the French Revolution right this is the excitement of it all they were in Tubingen at which had links to all these places in France because the Duke of Wittenberg also owned all this property, feudal property in France and so on. So, for example, one of their good friends, a guy named Vessel, was forever running away and joining the French Revolutionary Forces and then coming back just in time to take his exams, passing them, then running back to you know, mm-hmm. join the Revolutionary Forces. So, first of all, he's very taken up with the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. He maintained his interest in the French Revolution and his support for it his entire life. Every July 14th, he celebrated uh, the French Revolution Whether Glass of champagne. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very nice little story about this. This is 1920. Uh, Edward Gons tells the story of um, going with Hegel and some other students to Dresden to look at artworks, and well, they go out to dinner later, and Hegel dismisses the kind of local wine, the local Meissen wine, and so on that they have, and orders instead the most expensive champagne in Europe, champagne cillery for his students, and of course the students were all kind of astonished, you know, why the old why the old guy was doing this, right, and he. Raises he poured you a know, glass of champagne for everybody and raised his glass and said, gentlemen you know what today is? I all said no. <laughs> he said it's July fourteenth to the storming of the Bastille as he raised his glass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, So he kept the he kept the you know adherence to the revolution right, for all his life. Uh, in some respects, he thought of it as a kind of bourgeois revolution, though he not in not in the sense that Marx thought about it. He thought it was really a revolution of just. Oh, you know, complete overturning of the old order. And now we had finally the realization that he had been arguing about that, essentially, the concept of freedom was to be extended to everybody. You know, in his lectures on the philosophy of history, Hegel was very good at and lectures on art and all this. they always very good at coming up with very nice little one sentence, um, you know, kind of abbreviations because, you know, he knew that the students were often tuning out, and so you <laughs> needed little headlines to keep them mm-hmm. tuned in. Mm-hmm. And it was that history moves from one is free, you know, a kind of emperor or chieftain, to some are free, a kind of a male aristocracy, to the idea that all are free, mm-hmm. and that nobody by nature has the authority to rule anybody else. And the French Revolution was the achievement of that, he said. So mm. he was very much, you know, so his thought was very much tied into the revolution. Now. One of the ways to look at the later Hegel, I mean, back up in 1807, he published the Phenomenology of Spirit, which he said is really, he says in the preface, everyone around us can see that a new world is being born at this point here. Mm-hmm. By the time he finally got a job teaching as a professor of philosophy in 1818, that's 10 years later. In the meantime, he had been jobless, then he was editor of a newspaper, then he taught high school for a number of years and so on. Um, the, you know, Napoleon had come and gone, right? The Congress of Napoleon had been attacked, he lost the Battle of Waterloo. The Congress of Vienna set up to turn the clock completely backwards, right, to the days before the French Revolution. They were unable to do that for a variety of interesting his you know, still disputed historical reasons. Mm-hmm. So Hegel then was faced with the I the question of what is our modern world going to look like now in this post-revolutionary order? Mm-hmm. And that's when he began to write his mature philosophy and his mature system and so on. But it was always still in the context of the revolution. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The, the, the big Hegel book that I've actually read is the phenomenology of spirit and some of the science and logic. So I guess I've read the immature uh, Hegel and well, not your I translation. Think. I should read
0: your translation, I think. Right. I, I think I, you but, should. Yes. I wouldn't call it an immature book. I mean, Hegel was 30 when he did it. He's, he I mean that book is also astonishing it's basically a first draft that is he wrote that from scratch just created it roughly 1806 just sat down and got this idea and started going
1: you know my question about whether or not he should be put in the worldly philosopher book is also about like how he conceived of what he was doing in terms of philosophy or politics I think I mean Mm -hmm. uh um, did Hegel, Should we read Hegel in the philosophy department? Is that where he belongs, or should we be reading him in the in political science? Or, I mean, um, it, I guess maybe this whole notion of the worldly philosopher is sort of mm-hmm. needing to be unpacked for me. Even though I think I I know it, you know, I walk around think I understand it, but but um, like I get like for instance, was Hegel tackling transhistorical philosophical? Problems, or did he see himself as engaging with problems as they came up politically
0: and historically? Well, um, the answer is once again, both. That is, <laughs> right, well, it's one of the striking things about Hegel is that he is this kind of grand systematic thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's his first, you know, the, the big book to start the system off is The Science of Logic, which is about as abstract and abstruse a work as you could get. And it's, as he puts it, it's just pure thought thinking about itself. It's thinking, 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 Mm. he puts Mm. it in one place. Mm. But he also was a worldly philosopher, that is. He said in the preface to his 1820 philosophy of right, that uh, the purpose of philosophy is to grasp its own time and thoughts. And what he meant by that, in fact, he called the book, he said, it's the Grunlinian, it's the kind of baselines of the philosophy of right and law and morality. But it's just the baselines. So what you do when you're grasping your own time and thought, he says, is you're looking at your own time, trying to figure out what's essential to it, what the real, what's really going on, what's at, what's really at work, and what's only peripheral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to know where you came from, right? Where you are, and what is on the agenda now, and what are the possible solutions that are out there. And mm-hmm. that, so you're not just doing to say a snapshot of your own period or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's really are trying to figure out how you, know, how you got, where you are, how you got here and where you, sh- where you are going and should be going. Mm-hmm. And so we always understood that there are lots of different alternatives that are going to be coming up here. And part of his, his philosophy was to try and outline now some way in which we could respond to the, the new market society, for example, that was now taking over. Mm-hmm. This new emphasis on human rights, right? the new emphasis on a certain type of international order, and so, on, and so on and so on. And also, you know, along the way, questions about, so what role is art going to play in all this? Is this going to change the role of art in society? Right. What would a modern religion look like? A modern kind of up to date version of, say, Christianity look like? Yeah. And also, what would be a modern philosophy in a modern university setting? We also forget that Hegel's one of the people who designed the university that all of us went to. Uh, and, you know, it, yeah. Well, I mean, the Berlin University system that was established in 1809, right after the almost collapse of um, uh, of Prussia and in, in 1806 in the Napoleonic Wars, was that it was to be what, as it was done at the time by uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who gave the sketch for it, is to be a research teaching university, narrow and Forschung, where instead of the old model of the university as teaching orthodoxy, right, where the professors just professed The orthodoxy, whether they believed it or not, that's what they professed. Mm -hmm. This was to be the place where, kind of, the creative creative minds were to meet, you know, young people, kind of on their own turf, and take things forward in a progressive fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The central faculty was called philosophy. By the time that model got transferred to the United States, it came to be called the College of Arts and Sciences, but it was philosophy at the time that included all what we think of as the natural sciences and so on too. Mm -hmm. And Hegel was not the author of that, but he was one of the architects of the original Berlin university that kind of put it into the shape that it was made it so famous and made it then the more or less the model of universities around the world to do teaching and and research to to keep the ball moving. So, Hegel's philosophy is, is systematic, right? It's both very abstruse. It's about metaphysics and logic. It's also about its own time grasping thoughts. It's about politics. It's about art. It's about religion. Fundamentally, Hegel oriented this all around one central question, which was, he said, it's essential to Geist as this kind of self. I, I translate Geist instead of mind or spirit. I don't translate it. I think you should interpret it as equivalent to self-conscious life. Human, human life is self-conscious life. And the fundamental feature of self-conscious life, as Hegel had it, was to try and understand what it was to be a self-conscious life, what it meant to be a self-conscious life. And mm-hmm. You can now read the history of the world as various attempts, politically, aesthetically, religiously, and so on, to come to terms with that. Mm-hmm. And one of the features of our modern attempt is that we think that we've got to be making progress, and we also think that everybody's free. Everybody's entitled to the right to freedom and so on. Mm-hmm. But this is all held together by this question of what does it mean to be a self-conscious life and how do we get an interpreting grasp on that? Essentially, every time we give an interpretation of ourselves, we make ourselves into a moving target that just keeps down. Since we've got it, now we've changed.
1: Yeah, when you say that, I think to contemporary ears, that maybe um, there might be a chance for a misunderstanding because when you're, when you're talking about, a self-conscious life, you're not talking about just, like, advice for individuals. Like, you're not saying, how do we help ourselves to know ourselves? You know, it's more as a social question for the whole of society.
0: Right. Well, this is is a very good question. Um, Here's the short Hegelian answer. hmm. The short Hegelian answer is a large part of the modern world has tried to understand this is only an individual problem. But in fact, we are individuals only as part of a larger social network. We are inherently social. Our capacities for rationality and self-understanding are social capacities. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that. We have to have a place for the individual and a place for the sociality and so on. And of course, it is one of the pathologies of modern society that you know, we tend to think of this as purely an individual question, as if I somehow have all the resources I need on my own to answer that without having to rely on anybody else. And that is an illusion.
1: Right, but it's not that we shouldn't seek as individuals to have a self-conscious life and be free as individuals. It's just that for individuals to be free, the, Hegel would say that the, mm-hmm. the entirety of society would have to be free as well.
0: Yeah, once again, you know, I, you can be free only if others are free. Right? The mm-hmm. Greek solution was, of course, the opposite. It was that right, some, the males of the Athenian polis, could be free only if other people were not free, only if women and slaves were not free because mm-hmm. you could only be free if you could participate in all these discussions. So the dirty work had to be handled by other people. The modern principles, we can be free only if all are free. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a very different kind of, of view there.
1: And how does that, because when I was take back to my undergraduate days, when I was taking these classes as a philosophy student, um, the big question that I thought we were tackling was Mm -hmm. how do we know things? What is reason? It was always this epistemological approach to reading uh, Locke and reading Hume Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so on. And so by the time we got to Kant, it was still about, you know, how do we know Mm -hmm. the world? How do we uh, claim to have a a reason Mm -hmm. that can justify our own activity? Um, So, how how does Hegel combine the need for freedom this this idea that like I guess the creation of civil society creates a, a world of, of freedom uh, a social totality of freedom and the the epistemological question of like how do how we know things or what is what is reason
0: in that yeah. world uh, all these are great questions they're all the things that you know bothered Hegel. So Hegel begins the 1807 phenomenology of spirit by saying the question is one of how do we know things? Mm. And then he introduces immediately the sense of vertigo, right? That whatever kind of principle you bring up, right, is itself now open to question. So it looks as if it's just all, you know, all open to question and you can have a lot of different kinds of views and so on. So as he puts it, it's, right, the, this is, puts us on a path that um, looks like it's just a path of despair here, right? It looks like we're just going to have to give up on never claiming we know anything. But in fact, he says, "Let's let's start out with something that looks like it's absolutely certain Mm -hmm. here, and that's just the idea that whatever else I'm aware that I'm I'm aware that of things right here, right now. I may be wrong about which things are here right now, but I'm aware of things right here. I'm aware of something at least. Is that similar to what Descartes came up with? Is I think, therefore, I
1: am. It's it's
0: similar. It's, It's similar, but." but again you know interestingly different because it's not a i think therefore i am it's just i'm over, you know i know that there's something here right right he called it this here now something mm-hmm. this here right now mm-hmm. now one thing he tries to do is to try and show that if you try and take that out if you start once you start thinking about that that breaks down as a unified account it ends up being a kind of contradictory account and to make that work, you've got to realize that you were never really just saying this here now. You were also talking about things with general properties. And then mm. that looks like it's enough. And then it turns out actually, you know, to talk about things with general properties, you have to talk about them as in a background and their relation to other kinds of things, as expressing certain types of regularities and laws and so on. And so yet again, it's broken down and now it requires something further and when you look at that kind of thing, then you understand that really there's a kind of self-consciousness going on there.
1: Mm, right. That's where we get to maybe that, uh, I
0: and think. And then where, yeah. all of a sudden it turns out that self-consciousness is not itself just automatically right going to solve all the problems because there are the difference, differences that self-conscious agents have about now what counts as a reason. Who speaks with the authority of reason itself? And that gets you into a a competitive struggle, right, about who speaks with the authority of the whole, of the totality, and that resolves itself in mastery and servitude, which itself then falls apart. The master demands recognition from the slave, but the master at the same time claims the slave doesn't have the authority to give the recognition, mm. <laughs> right, mm. so you're forever, you know, as if it's saying, you know, Doug, recognize me. You say, okay, I will. So It well, doesn't count, though, because you're not the kind of person who can give me the recognition I need.
1: Right. Okay, so let me I'm gonna go I mean I this is oh, familiar yeah, territory. Part of the you might say part of Hegel's dialectic, you know. Right. I just want to go back to like, okay, so there the you begin with sense certainty, and and by beginning, you're presuming that there's an attempt to understand. There's a there's something that, that you wanna know. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't even know that there's a you who wants to know, but there's okay. a uh questing after knowledge there to to interact with the world so it's dialectical kind of from the start right it's not just the a being it's not just existence but there's a a relationship there's a seeking after
0: yeah, um, well it's, i mean i say what happens is you start out relatively certain about something and then you find that you're contradicting yourself so you find you're just babbling <laughs> oh, yeah yeah okay uh, okay so then you say back up let me think okay here's what i really meant i really meant this but then you start contradicting yourself again you find you're just babbling right and that's it's that finding yourself babbling right not making any sense that is what is driving on it, that part of the dialectic at least in the phenomenology okay okay um so he, he, give you an analogy and he starts, give me, the, me analogy. He starts yeah. the, the science of logic right he starts out in the same way he says so what is the most general concept we could have? And it's the concept of just being, to be, isness, you might say. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay, what, is, what does it mean to be? Well, it means not to be nothing. What does it mean to be nothing? Well, it means you're not being. So being and nothing just mean not each other. Okay, now yeah. what's the difference between them? You can't state the difference. Now mm-hmm. you find yourself babbling,
1: Right. Because once you try to state a difference between being and nothing, like let's, for instance, I would say, um, uh, the, uh, if you're, if it's, if it exists, if it's a being, then it would have extension.
0: You well, would have, That's going down the road now here. I was already making a, you're already far down the road from this.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. But then to say that it's like, it, you would then ask like extension in what? right and then i would say well it, let's say it's in nothing then you know like does then does it does nothing have an extension
0: so you know so you get this idea of negation just built in to the the system of thought and mm-hmm. it's what i think is driving everything and once again what's driving all this is the attempt to make sense mm-hmm. As a as a a, the Oxford philosopher A.W. Moore talked about in relation, say, to Dickenstein's son. There's making sense of things, and there's making sense of making sense. Right? And right. Philosophy, in many ways, is about making sense of making sense. What are the parameters under which we can make sense? Right, right. That's, that's why Hegel calls his first book logic. We're looking at the parameters of sense-making. But it's also so, about physics. It's also about things.
1: So, like getting the, so let's, let me ask you about the self-consciousness why you replaced uh-huh. spirit with self-consciousness cuz i'm i'm like uh, i'm trying to figure out how hegel is historical like how this is different than than the maybe the way plato would have approached the similar kinds of questions and um so it, the the need to make sense um uh, or to would that be also similar to like the need to justify
0: your opinion? Yeah. Related to it. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So this need to make sense, uh, it seems like it arises when you find yourself babbling. Is that, is that right?
0: No, that's kind of the way the dialectic works. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, We find that, I mean, it's probably because the need for it arises when we find that we're not making sense. Like, put it, to, to it this way,
1: in in that uh, book on world uh, the world philosophers, you know, they, they said, well, they had spent centuries in a rut of traditional society oh, command. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of imagine that um, if you lived in that rut, the need to make sense might not be so readily apparent, even if you were getting reasons put to you, um, the, you know, or the difference between like a university system where you just – recite doxa rather than try to create a conversation mm-hmm. um the the need to actually make sense might not be as evident right. uh it'd be more like rote memorization right. in that system Is
0: well, that- you know i mean halbriner's book on the worldly philosophers um
1: mm-hmm.
0: states a kind of thesis about modernity so you knew which book did I mention his name? You you knew which oh, book it was. I, I read that book a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> 1953,
0: yeah. Yes. It yes. A thesis about modernity. Mm-hmm. You know, that modernity is a break with the past, and that the reason we broke with the past was we were in a rut. Right? Mm-hmm. And then we but then we figured the way out of the rut in this mm-hmm. case. Uh, it's not a dialectical book. It's really a book that we on you know, some at some point, you know you can argue about which century, you know, 15th, 14th, 16th, 17th, whatever, right? 18th. We threw over tradition, right? Mm. So we quit relying on sacred books or the voice of nature or, you know, our holy ancestors and so on, right? We just started inventing all this stuff, right? With reason alone. And now look what we've done. I mean, we've got, you know, all this great market economy and everything's just hunky-dorky and so on and so on here. Mm. Right. And that's a certain type of, story that modernity has told of itself. It's a, certainly a story that is still alive and kicking, although it's breaking down in all kinds of different ways now. And one of the things that Hegel wants to do is historicize that story of modernity mm-hmm. to understand why it was that modernity took that kind of form of understanding itself as breaking entirely with the past and thinking now it's you know thrown out all there's no continuity, it's just throwing out all this stuff and so on. and yeah. that we've also replaced it with a whole bunch of other better ideas and so on. Right. So, I mean, Hegel, you know, Hegel very much historicizes all this. He wants to say that modernity is a particular kind of story that Europeans started telling themselves at a certain point in time for a certain type of reason having to do with the kinds of difficulties they were finding themselves in and so on.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, but that means that um, reason then, you know, in the abstract isn't historical, Exactly. Right. I mean, what you're saying is, you know, uh, it's not as though modern, the modern person just invented reason. And for the first time we had to try to make sense of the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, no, that, that there are all, there were attempts to make sense in Plato's day. Obviously, Socrates was attempting to make sense of, of things like what, what is justice. Um, so, um, but there, would the difference between the kind of modern reason and uh, the reason of uh, in the time of Socrates be this self consciousness? That well, the,
0: Hegel, yeah, Hegel wants to say yes. It was about a certain type of self consciousness. It was a certain type of way of understanding what it was to be a self conscious being. What spirit meant to itself at that time. Yeah, you know, what, mm. what to be geistish, right? The Greeks had a particular kind of conception of that. Hegel thought it also involved a kind of deep contradiction in itself. Mm -hmm. Because it was a view that held that there was a certain kind of universe. And for example, with Socrates, there was a certain type of universalistic morality that was possible. Mm -hmm. Hegel says in his lectures on the philosophy of history, he says, people often talk of Socrates as the discoverer of morality. Actually, he's the inventor of morality. Right? Mm -hmm. Is rather mm-hmm. than there being our rather than our say our obligations and so on, our commitments being bound to a certain type of social and cultural you know, sphere, rather, what re- what this type of reason was taking us was to morality, which is a universalistic sphere binding all humanity here. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, right, the Greeks didn't have a conception of how you could possibly have, say, an individual, right, and this in a full with full individuality in this kind of polis. Um, and the kind of strains that this put on the Polis were just too much to take, right? So what began to happen was, Hegel thought, is that as the Greeks lived out this kind of thing and this kind of life, and this philosophical questioning, with Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle and so on entered, that the kind of Greek life that they had began to look like it made less and less sense, as if life, you know, completely were to be exhausted in being a member of the police and that that required slavery and mm. that there was, well, no other way to run an economy other than a slave economy, right? You know, mm. uh, other, other historians have since made this kind of point, right, that, um, you know, by and large, right, for the ancient world, uh, slavery was just the way things were done. Maybe may be considered to be unfortunate, to be very bad business and so on, but on the whole, on the whole, nobody questioned the institution itself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that put too much of a strain. Eventually, in their tr- in their tragedies, particularly in something like Antigone,
1: mm-hmm.
0: here, right, the Greeks began to put on stage a, now not a philosophical but a kind of aesthetic, artistic representation of what they were about, and it didn't make sense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that began, so it's when they start, stop making sense, that's suddenly at this point, right, philosophy arises. What comes to right. Meaning, is this form of life is on the way out, basically.
1: Right. Um, well, I'm going to make a kind of a lateral move here. I, okay. I, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it makes sense, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, uh, but uh, when I think about this moment when things stop making sense in, in philosophical terms, I think of it as like a maybe a limit to reason it's mm-hmm. it's it points to a contradiction in our own thinking um and that uh it, it shows where uh you know where where we have to stop because we from at this point with when we hit this contradiction in our thinking we we can't go any further and um and and Kant writes about this again, yeah. you know, these contradictions that arise and he posited posits that you know the the world that really makes sense, the world as it actually is, the truth about the world is really outside of our domain. We're not going to ever get to it. But we what we can understand is only um, how we attempt to make sense. Yeah. the different categories that are in our sense making apparatus, like you know mm-hmm. extension or time or things like that, um, and Hegel. Uh, was not content with that uh, yeah. limit, right? He, he did, but did Hegel think that we had a- access to a way of making sense that would be, you know, the way we we're going to make sense forever? We could, fi- we could n-
0: not end up babbling again. No. Um, this is a you know the great question about how historical Hegel is and so on, whether. Look, uh, let me make a distinction. It's a Hegelian distinction, right? Okay. A distinction between a Grenze and a Schwanke, yeah, right. Between a limit and a boundary. Okay. Okay. I mean, they have a boundary. Is the kind of thing that you run up against a boundary. Maybe you can't get over the boundary, but you can see that there's something on the other side. Right. I mean, you can come up today to a locked door to a room, right? You know there's another room there, but you have no idea what's in the room. That's kind mm-hmm. of in some ways, some of that's Kant's idea of things in themselves. Here, right? Like that there's Something on the other side of the boundary, uh, we know it's there. We can't see over the wall, but we know there's something beyond the wall there. A limit, right. on the other hand, is where you really you reach simply the, you know, the very limit of what is making sense, such that trying to go further is just when you start babbling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So a limit, there's no other side of the limit in that case, if we're making this kind of limit-boundary distinction. Boundaries have other sides to them. There's, you can always imagine jumping across to the other side and seeing what, what's in that locked room here. With okay, limits, limits, there's nothing on the other side. You just reach the limit of thought. This, this You gave Hegel the idea, right? What we really have to do then is test the limits of thought right, to the utmost degree. That's what I was saying. So we start out with the kind of ground zero concept, just is, being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we find that right, we're pushed further now by just trying to even state that. Mm-hmm. As you try to mm-hmm. even talk about what it is we're talking about, we find ourselves babbling all of a sudden. And therefore, you know, as it were, you kind of correcting ourselves, saying, okay, no, what I really meant was this. Okay, now what I really meant was this, Right. Okay,
1: so um, so uh did Hegel believe that there were these limits then? Yeah. Um, yeah. And along with, and Kant thought the same way that there were these limits. That
0: well, Kant thought, Kant thought that there were limits to what made sense to us, but these limits were boundaries. He but, did, yeah. So he, he thought did.
1: we could see what's on the other side. the yeah, there are noumenal realm. Yeah,
0: well, there are things in themselves. We know. That, I mean, you might put it like this. This is not quite right, but right, close enough. Right. We know there are things in themselves, independent of us. We have no idea what they are. In principle, no idea. We don't know whether it's one big substance like Spinoza thought or it's a bunch of different forms like Plato thought, right, or Monads as Leibniz thought, right? We have no idea, no idea, and we'll never know because it goes beyond the bounds of the kinds of things we can make sense of, Kant thought. So that's that's just a boundary on our thought. Hegel thought, in principle, there is no boundary. Hmm. Now... Put it like this, right? But Hegel, there might be a limit, though. There might be a limit. Yes. Now, one of Hegel's contentions that he had with the Romantics of his own day was the Romantics exact want to say something like, "Well, there are limits to reason, but these limits are just kind of boundaries. There's a something out there that we can get at in a non-rational way." Hmm. maybe through the emotions or maybe through a kind of special type of intuition or something like yeah. that. We the third eye we could Yeah,
1: like Dr. Strange or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you know, the romantics thought oh. something like that. And this goes down to our day, right? That there are mm-hmm. people who say, look, you know, reason runs out, but there's not to worry there. Are, there's a way to get at these things that uh, don't require reason. Right. Now Hegel is, you know, as it were, the rationalists say, no, in principle, reason is going to be supreme. He also thinks this is the principle of modernity. Mm-hmm. You know, that as it were, right? We used to think there was a kind of there was a kind of divine boundary to our thought. There were a few things we just had to accept on faith. Modernity, in its full full flowering, says reason is what counts. And
1: yet. So when how do we how does Hegel handle these
0: contradictions that arise as boundaries or as limits? Uh, when they first arrived, they seem to be limits. It turns out that there were only boundaries. Right? Okay, is. you know they seem we seem not to be making any sense, and then we change the framework so that we now can understand where we. Why we had been in the situation we were in when we were not making sense to ourselves anymore. And now we are in a position where we can see that more clearly.
1: Okay, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna jump again. And I don't know if it's I'm not sure if I'll be making sense. But I want to go to Marx. Okay. Um uh and and ask this was is the difference between Hegel and Marx, the difference between like is what happened with he- Hegelianism is that it stopped making sense and then Marx came along and said, ah, we need a new framework to mm-hmm. understand this so we, it can continue to make sense. We, yeah. uh, the the Hegelian approach is, is limited to the realm of philosophy, to the realm of thought, maybe even to the realm of, of social relations in the abstract, but what's missing... Is material production, material creation, um, the way we organize ourselves to put food on the table and to build, you know, the houses that we live in, and so forth, um, was was that the reframing of Hegel that Marx contributed? Do you think?
0: Well, that's uh, certainly the way Marx talks a lot of the time. Right? That the, yeah. Hegel was a kind of idealist, and you know, he found Hegel standing on his head, and so he put him back on his feet. But, you know, you put an idealist back on his feet, and there's still an idealist. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 uh, right. Uh, right. So, you know, this is a, one of the most kind of up-for-grab, still controversial aspects about what the relation of Hegel to Marx is. It's pretty clear that what Marx said about Hegel's philosophy of right early on in Marx's career in 1843 is that Hegel has gotten this gotten it wrong about what the state is. Hegel... More or less got it right about civil society being this kind of competitive or, you know, market, heavily marketized, you know, arena. Mm -hmm. And that he thought that there was an institution called the state, a fairly new institution in European life called the Mm -hmm. state, that could speak for the authority of all of of the whole, all of society and balance out these kinds of conflicts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Marx thought that was just a mistake about what the state was. And it was because Hegel wasn't really paying attention close enough to what the productive relations were mm-hmm. that he was unable to see this. So to the market, yeah. So what's going on in the market? Yeah, basically? well, there's the productive forces in general, right? You know, mm-hmm. Hegel's talking too much about making sense of things. What he really should be looking at is how are things produced in the first place. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what? I mean, as I see it, you know, what Marx thought, right, was that Hegel, Hegel had taken things only up to their kind of penultimate stage, right, and you could already see Marx thought by the 1840s how the Hegelian synthesis that seemed to fit the 1820s now was coming apart. Industrialization was setting in, the rise of a widespread European proletariat was beginning to take shape, and so on in ways that it simply hadn't been. Right, mm-hmm. In Hegel's time, right? the Industrial Revolution was really just getting underway when Hegel is still alive. Mm-hmm. So at this point, right, at this point, it's clear that the the Grunlinian, right, the baselines are now themselves shifting. That what's on the agenda is also shifting. And therefore, we need to now really rethink this kind of thing here. And one of the features of Hegel's philosophy of history, I think Marx does take over a bit is that the way Hegel looks at, say, political history particularly, he looks at it as not just political, but also political and cultural and philosophical and everything. And what happens is, right, these gestalt des Lebens, a form of life, as Hegel calls it, these Mm -hmm. forms of life break down when they're no longer making sense to themselves. And the people now living in the rubble of that breakdown have to pick up the parts that are still working and throw away the other stuff that isn't working and build something new. It looks like it's going to be stable until it starts breaking down. Mm. What Marx is saying is Hegel's system is portrayed in the eighteen twenties now is in fact breaking down, and we are, you know, soon. Right, we will be living in the rubble to try and pick it up. That will be the, the socialist revolution. Mm-hmm. Right. So the the French Revolution, which we will now call the bourgeois revolution, is not the not the last one. In this case. right, right.
1: Of but of course, you know that that revolution didn't. Really, even end until into
0: the 20th century,
1: right? I mean, it, <laughs> okay, well, we're still.
0: I mean, because yeah. anyways, look, we're still fighting it out. Mm-hmm. You know, the French Revolution proclaimed, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity.
1: Oh uh, well, on that basis, yeah. But I'm just yeah. thinking, like, you know, it, you've, you've gotten rid of most of the aristocracy, and you don't have czars. You have, yeah,
0: you know, right. some
1: sort of formal democracies dominating the globe. That's it. You know, takes until after World War too for that to really be the case it
0: That's seems true. to me also true yeah. and it's also i think true one of the ways you can you can look at it slightly more abstractly you can say look one of the things that happened in the french revolution is that people like marx thought marxists for a long time said this was a bourgeois revolution then there were all these you know historians who stepped in in the 60s and 70s and 80s and so on and said actually if you start looking at you know who benefited from the revolution start actually you know, looking at the facts on the ground here a lot of aristocrats benefited from this uh, this new market society that got opened up and you know the new relations of property and they made a killing in real estate they made a killing by investing in the railroads and you know mm-hmm. they, they did all this stuff here mm-hmm. so yeah there was a bourgeoisie that you know benefited there was a bourgeoisie that that uh, also lost a lot there was aristocracy you know what really happened was the political role of the aristocracy vanished they no longer automatically had this kind of ruling ship but still now this this um, overall group of people I might say, the group of people who are still giving the orders are the people who control the wealth and finance and things like that. Right. And that group of people has never gone away. Right. Uh, the great democratic movements of the late 19th and then also during the 20th century have been movements to try and, I might say, actualize the potentiality of the French Revolution to claim that we really do want liberty and equality. Right, uh, And what we've had instead is a group of, well, you know, the ruling class holding on to this. Now, individual members of the ruling class come and go, but a ruling class that controls the means of production and finance and so on is still with us.
1: Right, right. Um, and so, but did, did Hegel believe that you pretty much had to have... The, that ruling class, you know, is that what the philosophy well, of right was about?
0: He doesn't think that there has to be a ruling. He thinks there can't be a ruling class, right? He thought, mm. first of all, the state is supposed to be an institution that works for the interests of all, mediates right. and so on for the interests of all. Mm. And there is something that's called the universal class, which is the technicians, bureaucrats, experts, and so on, who run the government and kind of keep everything in order here. Right. But, um, no, there's a very interesting little... in. Piece in the Brockhaus Encyclopedia of 1824. There's an entry on Hegel. Uh, mm. And it's written by a guy named Vent, Professor Vent of Leipzig, who was also an acquaintance of Hegel and knew Hegel well. And the um, particular entry on Hegel also has some biographical details that people wouldn't have known about unless Hegel told them. Mm. Uh, so Hegel almost certainly saw this entry. Mm. And Vent says in the in this entry, and I'm getting to the real points, says, People, some people have accused Hegel, right, of basically, you know, acting really in the interest only of a kind of ruling elite in society. But his philosophy has never meant, right, provide any you know, basis, right, for the ruling class, the Hessian de Klasse, and he uses the term Klasse there, mm-hmm. of the ruling class. Instead, it's about, you know, reason and this and that and so on. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that seems to be one of the ways in which Hegel was at least trying to signal now not by any writing on his own but by having a friend do this for him <laughs> right. he is not right He is in no way provided support support for the ruling class
1: right and and that would have meant the aristocracy at that time
0: right? well it would have been mostly the aristocracy
1: yeah at mm-hmm. that time. so i would recently watched an uh interview di- you did with the uh, a bunch of people from the platypus affiliated society and i'm friends with some of them like clint for instance and um you got to a point where you claimed and i don't remember the full context of this and i wish i did because i could ground it better the question but you claimed that marx thought that hegel had made a mistake and not just a trivial mistake or a political mistake but a philosophical mistake and that's where you stopped and then you didn't explain more and and the next question didn't Pick that up. So I want to pick that up. What do you know? Do you remember this part of that conversation or, or what a, philosophical mistake did Marx think that Hegel had made?
0: Um, Marx thought the philosophical mistake Hegel made was that he thought that it was possible for there to be a particular group in a class driven society, right? They could speak with the voice of the whole, speak with authority, exactly. and speak for everyone. Um, that was the mistake. And that was not. It was not, i say, a contingent mistake. as if Hegel had picked the wrong people to do this. Mm-hmm. So Marx thought that this would only be what Hegel wanted to accomplish, would only be possible in a classless society. Mm. right? And that's, that, I think, is what Marx took to be the, the philosophical mistake in, in Hegel's mm-hmm. view. So what's Marx's alternative? Well, I mean, you look at, you know, I mean, the one place where he talks about what communism is going to look like is in the Civil War in France, where he says the Paris Commune. He says, "Gentlemen, yeah. gentlemen this is communism." Here, mm-hmm. this is basically so. Marx's view is basically that um, communism is going to be the Greek polis, without slaves and the oppression of women. Okay, it won't be a state. It'll be a relatively small community now, working in tandem and peacefully with other communities, and so on and so on. Marx may have been naive about that but nonetheless that's more or less his view. What about
1: something like the general intellect as a part of Marx's view? Like we are not only we don't like want little small local communities but we want to bring the mass of humanity together. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, to produce the world. So it's be like uh the Greek polis but on a global
0: scale. No, well, the Greek uh, polis more or less on a global scale. Yeah, you know, there would there would be all these interrelations and so on but they would be peaceful relations, interrelations. Mm. Because the kinds of reasons we would have for, you know, conquering other territories and so on wouldn't be there anymore. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons why you want to go out and conquer somebody is to seize their capital, as it were, right? primitive. Occupation. Right. Yeah. And
1: you What's wouldn't need that? to do that because would, you would be yeah. in cooperative production with uh, right. with everyone around the world. Right. It's, right.
0: That's the, that would be the ideal, right?
1: Yeah. 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 What, that would be communism. That
0: would be international communism.
1: Yeah. Right yeah so all right well let me ask you one more question on this and then i i want to ask you about zizek if you have a few more minutes um mm-hmm. so my last question along this, do you consider yourself to be more of a hegelian
0: or oh, more of a marxist yeah, i regard myself more or less as a hegelian you know with i've put all the proper you know as i proviso's, and i don't don't buy this i don't buy that but yeah i call myself a hegelian
1: as opposed to like a marxist do you think that's a distinction worth making well,
0: you no know, i would say i'm a hegelian very influenced by Marx, as opposed to a Marxist very influenced by Hegel. OK, OK. Right. Yeah. This is right. an argument that I have with you know colleagues in China, right? You know, I say, you, know, mm. y- you guys are all Marxists who are influenced by Hegel. Right. Mm. I am, on the other hand, a Hegelian influenced by Marx. But I'm also mm. Hegelian influenced very much by a certain type of liberal tradition and so on. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I, I worry that I'm a Hegelian influenced by eighties sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs>